you don't have to answer this out loud, but what do you believe? It's a very simple question, but it has enormous ramifications. See, what you believe will determine your actions and drive your decisions. And what you believe can cover a lot of things. Charlene and I have had opportunity over many years to come alongside folks. Sometimes we've come alongside people who are hurting in a variety of ways. And, and as we spend time with those people, we learn that over the years they've learned, they've, they've kind of believed that they aren't enough, believed that, that they'll never be good enough, believed that they can never achieve anything. You know, messages sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes messages sent from families make someone believe they'll just never make it. And yet on the other hand, there's other people we've dealt with that, that in the midst of struggles have a confidence because they believe that God is with them. They believe that God is enough. They believe that no matter how hard it is, God will see them through. What you believe matters. Now, I've told you the story before, and I won't go into all the details, but a bunch of years ago, we were out on our, I think it was probably our first vacation after we'd been here a year, stopped at Amana Colonies out in Iowa to kind of give our kids a little bit of history. Uh, we always like to, you know, we would, for the first few years, we went to see my folks, and then we decided, they always come through, let's do different stuff. And so this was the beginning of that. While we were at the Amana Colonies, we uh, were, were maybe 10 minutes from our hotel that was right on Interstate 80 and uh, Holiday Inn, and I'm not getting a percentage for saying that, uh, but, uh, and uh, straight winds came through, 80 to 100 mile an hour straight winds. We were in some whole old furniture store that obviously had been there about 100 years, so we figured it could handle it took two and a half hours to get back to our hotel. The Holiday Inn sign's lying on its side. They're handing glow sticks out because they have no power. They have no air conditioning. They're offering refunds for anybody who decides to leave. It was probably another seven hours to my mom and dad, so we just pack up and we start heading that way. And No more than 45 minutes down the road, maybe an hour down the road, you ever notice how the gas gauge on your car starts out way up here at full? And then all of a sudden, after it gets half, like it takes forever to get to half, and then it's like, <laughs> you know, all the way down. So I, I'm looking at the gas gauge, and I'm going, oh, my goodness, we're going to run out of gas. And I prayed a really deep prayer. Lord, I need help. That was my prayer. I think sometimes that's the most godly prayer you and I can pray. Lord, I need help. I need help. That's all I prayed. We're driving along. I'm watching the gas gauge. And somewhere driving along, I literally hear these words, take the next exit. I look at Charlene. She's just sitting there crocheting. Kind of The kids are sleeping in the back. The next exit comes up. It's a mile away. I put the blinker on. Charlene goes, are you sure? I said, I think we need to take this exit. She goes, but there, there's no power. I said, I, we're just going to take this exit. Drive up the top of the ramp, cross over, pull in. Lights are on at this gas station. Fill my car up with gas. That's back in the days when you had to go inside and pay. 
So, you know, I went inside and I hear conversations. Five minutes earlier, their power had come on and their pumps were restored. The time God was telling me, take this exit. You see, I believe God is there. I believe God speaks to me. Now, I'll tell you this, I've never heard that kind of a clear, audible voice prior or hence. But in that moment, God said, you need to hear me without question. But had I not believed that God was there, I would have continued on and maybe waited for a state trooper to come by, put some gas in my car so I could maybe get to an exit. What you and I believe determines our actions and drives our decisions. We're in Romans 3, and we're going to talk about belief. In fact, I'll tell you, today we're going to talk about belief. Next week, we're going to have a special guest here. He's a neighbor to some of us, Dr. Bill Merrifield, and he's going to talk about faith from the book of Proverbs. And then the week after that, we're going to continue the conversation of belief and faith in the book of Romans. So for three weeks, we're just going to be bombarded with what does it mean to believe? The Apostle Paul is guiding the Roman church. He's helping them to consider all they have in their relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And remember, he's writing to an audience that largely comes from positions that are diametrically opposed without Christ. On the one hand, you have the Jewish believers, and they come from this background where they knew the law, they were responsible for it, they were, as Paul says, given the very words of God. And on the other side, you have these Roman believers, these Gentiles, that come from pagan backgrounds, that worship any god that they can add to their shelf. And Paul says, Christ brings us together. And he's reminding them that when Christ comes into our lives, he pulls us together, he unifies us. Nobody, the word I've used, is spiritually privileged. And and so we saw in the first, up through the first part of chapter 3, the answer to the question of what's wrong with this world is sin. And to use the late Eugene Peterson's words, we're all in the same sinking boat. We all come into this world flawed because of the sin of Adam and Eve. And, and so there's a problem in this world. And so regardless of anyone's perceived spiritual privilege or background or ethnicity or nationality or family, we're all in the same sinking boat. And what we're beginning to see now is it's the work of Jesus that is the answer. Uh, and, and we're seeing, it, and Paul's going to say, how do we access that work? What's, what's the foundation? And so in this section, what I hope by God's grace we'll see this week and the next two weeks before is this strong case for faith, which is really built on the fact that there is a power in simple belief. Listen as I read from Romans chapter 3, verse 27 through chapter 4 and verse 8. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. Because of what law? The law that requires works? No. Because of the law that requires faith. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, 
of Gentiles too, since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, discovered in this matter? If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work but trusts God, who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the one to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. The first thing that really stands out is simply this. Faith in God levels the playing field. Faith in God levels the playing field. And as he's showing us the solution to the world's problems of sin, Paul continues to remind his audience, not just the audience at Rome, but now you and me, to remind his audience that before God, nobody has an advantage. Nobody has an advantage before God. In fact, the sinful response to God is to somehow think that in some way we're better than others. Even when we do come to faith in Christ, it doesn't make us better than someone else. It gives us a different perspective, a faith perspective, a foundation for belief. Paul says, and he, and he uses this methodology. We'll see it throughout the book of Romans. It's this methodology of asking a question, kind of perceiving what the question may be, and then answering the question. And, and so he says, in essence, if all have sinned, and they have, where's the boasting? And he says, there is no boasting. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. We have nothing to brag about. It's excluded, he says. It's eliminated. It's shut out. And a point that Paul will hammer home here and throughout the book is you can't earn your way into God's grace. The late Dallas Willard was known for saying, grace is opposed to earning, but it's not opposed to effort. And here's what he meant. I can't earn God's grace, but once I receive God's grace, favor through grace once I believe in him, then I live in that grace. We'll see that in a minute. Paul says, you can't earn your way into God's graces. You and I cannot somehow think that we have done something that gives us the right to take credit for our salvation. Paul tells us God takes that completely off the table. He says there's, there's only one thing it's the law of faith. Ever heard anybody say or point to someone else and say, that person is a self-made woman or a self-made man? And it's interesting. 
confession time. I do enjoy watching Shark Tank. Uh, <laughs> uh, it, it's just fun to watch that. But you know, it's interesting. They'll do the stories of the, the sharks. Every one of them talks about people in their life who came alongside at the right time, who walked with them, who believed in them, who taught them, who trained them, who mentored them. The reality is there is no such thing as somebody who is self-made. Everybody depends on someone else. You know, in, in my office, along my wall, I have these pieces of paper, and each one of them reflects some academic achievement. And, and my last degree, which is kind of a disturbing thought, they call it a terminal degree, which means there's nothing else to get, but that's still kind of, we've got to come up with a better phrase for that. Um, when I got done with the, the paper that brought about that degree, took about a, over a year of research and writing. One of the things they instructed us to do was to put a page in there called Acknowledgements. How powerful is that? I went back, I literally went back and looked at that the other day. And it just humbled me. I began in my Acknowledgements obviously thanking God. And then uh, I thanked Charlene. And then I thanked my kids, and I only had two in-laws at the time. My son wasn't married, but you know, all of them were encouragers, different ways. And then I thank you people in there. I thank the elders and the people at Pleasant Hill Community Church who encouraged me along the way. And my, my document that I wrote was all about churches ministering to single moms, and I thank the single moms out there who I called some of my heroes. And it just humbled me. You see, I, I may have been the one that read the books and wrote the notes and typed the paper, but there were so many people that were kind of holding me up as I went through the process. Even people I didn't know. One day we were at an event with some of Charlene's co-workers, and one of her co-workers' husbands had been through the same process. And uh, so he was asking me how my writing was going. I said, well, <laughs> I got a paragraph done today. And he looked at my wife, he said, you need to understand, that's a huge accomplishment. And, and that is an important thing. I celebrate that. Just all those little things. You and I don't do stuff on our own. The best efforts are team efforts. And yet God says, even the best team effort is not enough when it comes to my standard of righteousness. He says, there's no boasting. Because it's a law, it's a principle that requires faith. Paul uses the word law in two ways here. He talks about the, uh, the law that requires works, and he's speaking to the Mosaic law. But then the law that requires faith is a principle of faith. And, and Paul says, Nothing, boasting is excluded because there's this principle that requires faith. And because of that, a person is justified. In other words, they are made right with God because of faith separate from any work of the law. The word translated faith is, we know that word, right? It means to believe. It means to trust. But it also means to have confidence or certainty. You and I, even if we're not 100% confident, we exercise faith all the time. Those of you who drove here today, you exercised faith. 
You exercised faith in those other drivers on the road that they would stay in their own lane. Some of you have flown commercially. That is a huge exercise of faith. You are trusting that the pilot and the co-pilot are at the top of their game, that they've rested well, that they're alert, that they're awake. You are trusting that the ground crew has that plane in tip-top condition. You are trusting that the navigator really knows how to navigate. You are trusting that at the, in, the, in the air traffic control tower that they're paying attention, that there's not some birthday party going on and, and everybody's having a party and they're not focusing on that. You're trusting, and this has been a big one in the news lately, right? You're trusting that all those other pilots stay in their own lane. It's an exercise of faith. We exercise faith all the time in many ways. And yet sometimes, somehow, when it comes down to the idea of salvation, of putting our faith in Christ and believing that we are saved from our sins, people go, whoa, 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 I don't accept charity. I, I, that can't, it can't be that easy. There is power in simple belief. But it's not just to eliminate the boasting and put faith on level plane. Paul emphasizes something else beginning in verse 29. He emphasizes that faith in God is a unifying factor. Notice he begins with some questions again. Is God the God of the Jews only? The natural answer is no, he's not. Is he not the God of the Gentiles too? Yes, he is. Because there's only one God. I mean, now this speaks to the core of Judaism. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, called the Shema by the Jews because the first word is the word Shema. It means hear. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, the Lord your God is one. And you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your strength. The Lord is one. So Paul says, if God is one, and he is, then he's the God of the Jew, and he's the God of the Gentile. He's the God of everyone. So just as we saw last week, just as sin puts us in the same sinking boat, now we see that when salvation is about faith in God, there is a unifying factor that puts us all in the same lifeboat. And we all get in the lifeboat the same way. Sometimes, it's a difficult reality to grasp. You know, he says, there's only one God. Do we then nullify the law by our faith? You see, the good Jew would follow the law. And their concern was, well, wait a minute, Paul. If you're saying all of this, then why is the law important? And, and, and so somehow we just kind of negate the law. But no, God says, I've set the rules, and I've set the rules as a unifying way. And what God says is, no, when you come by faith, you actually uphold the law. Uh, let me draw on a... Some things I read this week, there's one scholar that said throughout Romans we see the value of the Mosaic Law. Sometimes 
guys like myself have come along and said it's all about the New Testament. No, the, it's about the Bible as a whole. And the Mosaic Law is important. We shouldn't, but, but Jesus said, I came to fulfill the law. And yet there's value in the law. We'll continue to see in chapter 4 how the law points us to the good news of Jesus, the gospel. The law reminds us that we need Jesus. Uh, we'll look in chapter 8. The law is a standard of God's holiness that was fulfilled by Jesus. We'll see in uh, chapter, we saw last week in chapter 3, the law was used by God to show us that we were sinners. And we'll see in chapter 13, the law is still a guide for how we're to live the Christian life. And you could go back to the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus touches on points of the law and says, this is what the law says, but here's how you really live it out. So our faith does not negate the law of God. Jesus said he came and fulfilled it, and when we put our faith in him, it leads to our being declared righteousness. We benefit from Jesus fulfilling the law. Faith in God is the unifying factor because it is applied to each person regardless of their background. And that brings us to the third truth. The truth is God owes us nothing but gives us everything we need for salvation. God owes us nothing but gives us all we need for right standing with him. And Paul launches into talking about Abraham. Now, to get an idea of what Paul's talking about, I need to just for a minute go back to Genesis chapter 15. In Genesis chapter 15, we find this man, and he's Abram there, but uh, he eventually becomes Abraham, so I will probably transpose the names, same guy. Abram is living in chapter 11 of Genesis in Ur of the Chaldees, which is modern-day Iran, or Iraq, modern-day Iraq. And he's living there. He was probably a, a, a pagan. He probably wasn't a full God worshiper, but yet God comes to him, says, I want you to pack your bags, pack your camels, leave, and go to the land I'm going to show you. Don't you like that? My kids used to like that. Where are we going? Oh, we'll tell you later. No, 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 really, where are we going? Where am I going, God? I'll tell you when you get there. Abraham does it, but he only gets part way. gets to Haran, and his father's with him. His father finally dies, and Abraham moves on. Eventually, he gets to the, the promised land. And God tells him in, in Genesis 12, I'm going to make you a great nation. Well, that's a great promise. Abraham looks around. He's about 75 years old at that point in time. And he looks around and he goes, okay, we got an issue here, God. And we, believe me, we've tried, but Sarah and I can't have kids. She's barren. We can't have children. How are you going to make me a great nation? God says, trust me. You get to chapter 15, and Abram's still struggling with this. He's somewhere between 75 and 85 in chapter 15. And I know that because it says he's 85 in chapter 16, and he was 75 when he left. So I used a little bit of logic there and said, he's probably between 75 and 85. We don't know exactly how old he is. And, 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 he, and he hears this from God. In Genesis 15:1. the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. Do not be afraid, Abram. I'm going to protect you. 
Do not be afraid, Abram. I'm going to fulfill my promise to you. You're going to be a great nation. You're going to be, I'm going to give you a very great reward. And Abraham is kind of processing this. And he says, Lord, what can you give me? I'm still childless. And my main servant, a guy by the name of Eliezer of Damascus, he's going to inherit everything. That's the way it works. And God says, verse 4, The word of the Lord came to, this, to him and said, This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. So he takes him out, no light pollution. And he looks up and just millions of stars. Try to count them. That's your offspring. And then we have these words. Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. Simple belief. We could go on, we won't right now, but it's very interesting that God makes a, a treaty with Abram. It's, it's called a, a suzerain vassal treaty. It's a treaty that comes with blessing and curses. It had to do with animals and stuff, but it was just a way of God promising Abram, I am going to do what I told you I'm going to do. But the point that Paul wants us to hone in is, Abram believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness. And Paul says, so to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. Paul's point is this, if we do a job for someone, if we work for another person uh, for whom we do the job, they are obligated to pay us. Contrary to what your employer may sometimes feel like, they are not giving you a gift. They are giving you the credit due you for the work that you did that comes in the form of a salary. Our salary is not a gift. It is what is owed. And in fact, you could say, and in this day of direct deposit, you could say that uh, due to the work I did, my bank account is now credited with my salary. But salvation is not something we can earn. He says, verse 5, However, to the one who does not work but trusts God, who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. My faith is the credit. My faith is the deposit. My faith is what God responds to. Abraham believed God and his spiritual bank account was credited with God's righteousness. He did nothing to deserve that except he took God at his word. Paul's point is we need God to do the crediting. We don't have what it takes to make a sufficient deposit into our own spiritual account. And in fact, he goes on, he says, However, to the one who does not work but trusts God who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. That phrase, God who justifies the ungodly, has kind of troubled 
scholars over the world over the time, and and I'm not going to pretend to be the guy that has the answer, but I I looked at that, I thought about it, I thought, why would God justify the ungodly? If God justifies the ungodly, why should I live a good and godly life? I mean, I'm going to be justified anyway. In fact, that kind of thought, and we'll deal with it later in Romans 6, has led people to believe, you know what? God's a forgiving God. God forgives sin. He's in the forgiving business. So it really doesn't matter if I make this decision, which I know is a wrong decision. I know it's a sinful decision. I know the Bible says I shouldn't do it, but I'm going to do it anyway because you know what? God's going to forgive. So why shouldn't I put God in a position to forgive me? And Paul says that is just crazy logic. That is wrong logic. God does care about what we do. And the point he's making is no one is good enough to be called godly in and of them themselves. No one is good enough to merit God's grace and mercy. Because faith is credited as righteousness. If God will give the ungodly right standing when they put their faith in him, then everyone has hope. Then Paul drives this point home. And he references the psalm that we read together earlier. In Psalm 32, 1-2, David praises God for his forgiveness a God who does not count our sins against us. Can I just remind you today, so often some of us struggle when we've made uh, mistakes in life, when we've made bad decisions in life, when we know we've made wrong decisions. The thing we sometimes struggle with is, I can't forgive myself. But you know, that is, I believe, our enemy, the devil, working overtime. Because God tells me in Psalm 103, he removes my sin as far as the east, and that is east, is from the west. He forgives me completely. He does not count my sins against me when I have confessed them to him. He doesn't bring them back up. He doesn't throw them into my face. And that, that's what we read today, the rest of that psalm is just, just a reminder that this is God's response when we confess our sins, when we don't try to hide them, that he's a forgiving and cleansing God. And, and so Paul wants us to realize that there is power in simple belief. It's a power that levels the playing field, that unifies us, that reminds us that all we have for salvation we have through Christ. Well, that's all really good, but what do we do with it? You know, I have a friend that says, answer the so what. So let's deal with the so what. So what? What do we do here? How does this teaching help us today? Let me try to explain that with a, an imagined scenario. Suppose there's a person that gets themselves into an awful situation financially. Yes, they have a job, but there have been unexpected, unplanned bills, and they've dug themselves into a hole. They've maxed out credit cards to try to make ends meet, and it just has snowballed. And they don't see a way out. And now imagine that someone comes along, someone of extreme wealth, a shark maybe, 
uh, of extreme wealth comes along. And they realize that this person has gotten into this mess. And they, become, they discover all that is owed. And so they approach the person in debt. And they say, I want to help you. I want to get you not only out of this debt, I want to also get you to a point where you can be back on your feet financially. And I want to do this without any strings attached. You will owe me nothing. You will not be obligated to me for anything. And the next day, the person realizes that a huge amount of money has been deposited into their bank account, enough money to pay off every creditor, enough money to pay off every debt, and enough money to get them kind of back on their feet so that they can keep moving forward. And the only thing they have to do is believe that it's there and that there are no strings attached. Can you imagine the sense of freedom? Can you imagine the, the relief? Can you imagine uh, there's the humility, but then there's also, wow, I can, I can hold my head up again. Can you imagine the first night of good rest, knowing that it's all been taken care of? And that person now has a choice. You see, that person can... Make a decision in that moment. I am going to make changes in my life. I am going to make changes in the way that I manage so that I'm never in this position again. And so they go get some help. They meet with someone who helps them set up a budget and teach them how to save. They become accountable to someone who says, Check in with me on a regular basis and I'm going to help you manage. They think about their purchases and, and do I really need this? All of a sudden they have that sense. They think more carefully about it. They develop a better understanding of needs and wants. And ultimately they grow and mature in managing the resources God has given them. We need those two parts as we follow Christ. You see, we're that person. We are in such a deep debt because of our sin. There is no way out at all. And Jesus comes along and he pays the debt. He pays the price. And when we receive, when we believe that he's done that, a, a deposit is made in our spiritual bank account and our lives are lifted because of the complete forgiveness that comes with God when we confess our sins he credits our spiritual account with righteousness we have the ability to see ourselves and our lives more clearly we have the freedom to be the person God wants us to be there is relief from the weight of sin but what we will see as we move on in Romans. And for that matter, what we see throughout the Bible is that once we've had our spiritual bank accounts credited with the righteousness of God, that's not the end of the story. God's forgiveness should move us to desire to manage life in a way that reflects God's love 
and God's grace. And so we read our Bible not for some recognition, not so we can post on Facebook that we you know, read the whole Bible in a year, whatever, not, not to get anybody's glory. We read the Bible because these are the words of life. These are the principles for living. We make ourselves accountable to godly people, not so they can control us, but for godly people who walk alongside us and put their arm around us and say, I know, I've been there, let's walk together. I know, I accept you for who you are because God loves you for who you are and let's help you go to be a place where you're better than where you are now. We walk together. That's what church is about. The church is a family of believers who walk together, who encourage one another, who come alongside one another, who when someone falls and stumbles, we don't judge them. We say, okay, come on, let's get you back on your feet. Let's make the changes you need to make. Let's walk together through this. We think carefully about our decisions so that we have a better vision of who God is and who He's made us to be. We've been talking on Wednesday nights about spiritual gifts, and it really comes down to using the abilities God's given you for His glory and wherever He places you. We begin to believe that God does really love us unconditionally, and He wants us to be in Him more than we could have ever imagined. And when the inevitable challenges come, and they will come, we have a foundation to move through them in His power. Simple belief has power in that it puts us in a right relationship with God. And we all need to start there. How we manage the righteousness that has been credited to our spiritual account is the essence of what it means to follow Jesus as a disciple. And we need our count credited, and then we need to follow him as we go through life. Father, thank you for this reminder from the Apostle Paul. Thank you, Lord, for these words that uh, sometimes can be kind of hard to grasp, but we hopefully have gained an understanding, an understanding of who we are and what you've done. And I think really, as simple as it is, that's, that's the point. I am one who is a sinner. By God's love and grace, I am saved by grace. And now I am responsible to live out your truth on a day-to-day basis. Lord, teach us, strengthen us, encourage us today. In Jesus' name, amen.